Hello and welcome to the VentureForth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome Tony Conrad, a partner at True Ventures and co-founder of two companies acquired by AOL, About.me and Sphere. He's an avid traveler, philanthropist, and triathlete, and has a very interesting background that includes short stints in some very eclectic roles that would be really interesting to dive into, actually. I had the pleasure of meeting Tony and learning about his history as part of the NUCO conference, and was fascinated by his history and how he made decisions to invest in some of today's most well-known and well-loved brands like WordPress, Fitbit, and Blue Bottle Coffee. Jeff Clavier says that Tony is one of the few guys who figured out how to be both a great entrepreneur and a great VC, and in my own experience, found that Tony was one of the most humble and relaxing investors I've ever spoken to. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. I appreciate that, Joe. <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, so before diving in, I'd love to start by hearing a little bit uh, about your background and the road leading to True. Well, um, I grew up in a small farming community in the northeastern part of Indiana, a town of about 5,000 uh, to 6,000 people in a good year. And after that, you know, spent time living abroad. Um, I spent time in uh, New Delhi, then spent uh, four years in Paris, and then I worked in Jakarta, Indonesia for about another four years, and then eventually found my way here to the West Coast in uh, 1996, 1997, and became a venture investor. A pretty good fun time to enter into the venture capital industry and, um, you know, got lucky. I think you'd have to be pretty unskilled to have been lucky in that time period or not to have been lucky in that time period. But, um, you know, as it is, it taught me a lot about the industry and went through some really kind of brutal times in the back part of the 90s and the early 2000 time frame. But, you know, kept at it and it's kind of all worked out, you know, kind of since then. How how is growing up in a, the small farming community out in Indiana like how has that contributed to who you are today? Well, it's been profoundly important for me. You know, where I grew up, I think it was uh, nine kids out of 122 in my graduating class went to college. So you know, it's not an environment in which this path or this outcome is is at all obvious or even really kind of possible in a lot of ways. Having said that, you know, the amazing thing about where I grew up was, you know, I had an amazing family. Um, I'm very fortunate. I don't have any tragic story, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, about my family. Um, I love them dearly and they've been incredibly supportive. But because I think I was always a little bit geared differently um, than a lot of the other people in that community, there was really just a tremendous amount of opportunity to get involved in things and to do things and kind of invent a little bit my own opportunity, if you want. I did lots of different odd jobs. You know, I've done everything from being the classic lawnmower person to working in a pharmacy, working as a janitor, uh, working as a little league umpire, working at uh, basketball camps, writing a sports column for the local newspaper just a full range of jobs because, you know, in some ways I was a little bit bored and I also wanted to push myself. And in that environment, everything was possible to kind of go do. And so 
for me, you know, as I kind of look back now, I really have come to appreciate and to recognize just how fortunate I was to have that kind of environment to grow up in. It just allowed me to to really kind of de- develop a lot more self-confidence and just kind of push myself forward. Um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, I was really, really lucky. Likewise, you mentioned that you lived all over the world and you've really been in, immersed in many different cultures. How have those experiences shaped your view of the world and, and contributed to who you are today? Well, tremendously. You know, um, as I left Indiana and made my way to Chicago and then eventually to New York and then found myself living in New Delhi and then to Paris and then to Indonesia, you know, each one of those steps really kind of exposed me to a much more interesting and culturally diverse world. And I I think about the first time after college and, uh, you know, I was moving to Chicago and and the Sunday before I was going to start my job, I walked up to this building, which was the Equitable Building in, uh, by the river off of Michigan Avenue. And I think it's like a 25, maybe 30-story building. And I remember looking up at it, and I just I felt so intimidated by the moment and so kind of unworthy in a lot of ways, um, very similar to the way I felt when I was a freshman in college where I didn't feel as, as as prepared for that moment as maybe some other people that had grown up in slightly more sophisticated, more advanced, uh, more educational type environments. And I just remember thinking like, wow, this is a huge moment, you know, for, for me. And I wasn't 100% certain I could do it. And I did it. And, you know, I think just like with college and each step in my career, um, until maybe about five years ago, I got got over being a little paranoid about my capabilities. Um, I just think with each step, I just developed a little bit more confidence, and that was really exhilarating and has been really kind of helpful to me. And so, by the time I lived abroad, I was already starting, you know, to have the confidence that's necessary to be able to to find my path and. To be really kind of open to the environment and to absorb it, take advantage of everything that was being offered. And so, you know, Paris was really the first kind of truly challenging moment for me because I didn't really speak French. I spoke enough, but not very well. And, you know, I had to really kind of struggle and fight my way through it. And I eventually became very proficient and somewhat bilingual at that time in French. And, you know, I was able to work and, and really have a, a really great experience. And once I kind of got through that, I was like, okay, I can do anything. I'm a competent human being who can find challenges and figure my way through it. And I think that's such a gift to get, you know, as you, as you kind of develop as a person and you develop your career. Absolutely. Completely agree with you. And I'm and a, a huge traveler myself, although I haven't lived abroad as much as I'd like, but um, you know, perhaps in the future. Definitely do it. I highly recommend it for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so besides the successes with uh, investing, and the thing that you're most sort of well-known for is About.me. And About.me was famously acquired four days after launch, uh, after the official launch, and was growing like crazy. Can you talk about your vision for starting the company, why it was growing so quickly, and and how many users you had at the time of acquisition? 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, About Not Me is is a, a lot of ways, you know, kind of a bit the, the love of my life at this point. It still has a lot of challenges in front of it. And who knows how that will kind of navigate through that. But, you know, it's always been something that's been very dear to me. I've for a long time had a thesis around public identity. And one of the things that I saw happening with the acceleration of usage and adoption of these social networks was that our personalities are kind of, they're, they're in slivers, right? They're very fractionalized. And I'm kind of one person in LinkedIn. I'm another person in Facebook or Instagram. I'm even yet another person in Twitter. And they're all, you know, they're all real. They're all authentic to who I am, but none of them really kind of capture what I'll call a holistic picture of who I am. And so I always felt that everybody in the world, just like in the 1950s, everybody wanted to be listed in the phone book. I just feel like everybody in the world should have at minimum a very simple kind of personal page or a website on the on the web that's accessible. We meet people, we work with people, and the first thing that we typically do is we go Google search them or we try to find out about them and if we're interested to learn more. And, you know, I think outsourcing your identity to Google and Google, who which is a really great company, but outsourcing that into their algorithms is is just a little mind-boggling to me. It's something that I should control. Um, and I should be pointing people to a page that's simply about me, who I am as a person, what I do as professional, what I look like, and where you can learn more about me in those specific services such as, you know, Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and all that stuff, which I can connect. And then we also enable people to uh, email directly from your page to you. So it allows people that I don't know per se, but may have an interest in reaching me and I might have an interest in being reached and it matches up and enables us to connect. So I think what we're doing at about.me nails that. And I think we're just the the best at doing that as we've grown the company and it's quite sizable at this point in terms of the users, uh, still quite small in terms of its revenue base and its business model. So those are the things that we're focused on. But as we've grown it, we've learned a lot about our user base. And what we've figured out is that uh, people that are freelancers, 1099ers, people that have a side hustle, solopreneurs, people that have a passion side project, those type of people, our product serves incredibly well and I think probably better than anybody else. Those type of people, typically they don't need a big heavy website with multiple pages and complexity and hard to kind of keep up to date. What they need is just a simple kind of splash page that captures the things that I talked about that we do at about.me. If we meet and you're interested in learning more about me and you go to my Twitter page, that's not a, at any given time, that potentially is not a great representation of who I am. It's a great representation of what I'm thinking in that moment. Mm. And sometimes I say stupid things or funny things or things that don't come across as clever, <laughs> you know, on Twitter, just probably like anybody else who's active, you know, on that platform. And I think that if you land on my page and right now, you know, like a lot of people in Silicon Valley, you know, I'm, I'm a little up in arms about our current government and blah, blah, blah. Not everybody agrees with that. 
right? A lot of the people I grew up with don't agree with that. And and I and I'm respectful of those kind of different opinions. And so just so be, I'm saying it on Twitter and if that's your first interaction with me, you know, it doesn't make you want to actually engage with me. And it's not a great way for you to get to know me. And by no means does my political views represent who I am, right? They're a piece of who I am and they're an important piece of who I am, but they're part of the puzzle. They're part of the broader context. And so what I would prefer is that people get to my Twitter page via my about.me page because they've learned a lot more about me and kind of my story and who I am and what matters to me and what I'm working on. And they see me from a much broader perspective. And then they can go into those very specific, you know, slivers of who I am, my my professional acumen or my personal, you know, kind of rants or political views or whatever all that stuff is. It's all part of my DNA and part of who I am as a person. But none of that should solely define me. The only person who should define me is myself. The only service I know of that does that incredibly well in a simplified manner is the product that we've built with about.me. That's why I continue to love it. Absolutely. I, you know, I also need to comment that like about.me might be the best straightforward product name I've ever seen. I, I mean, even in our, in our conversation right now, you know, you want to learn about me, like, we're saying it all the time and, and it's so easy to remember. And I think the dot me part of it, when I learned about, uh, about dot me was really one of the first sites that made me realize like not everything is a dot com or, or that there was another option. Yeah. Thank you. You know, that was done by design. In fact, when Ryan Freitas, Tim Young and myself were starting it, I think that, you know, what was important to us was this name and almost to a point to where we would not have started the company if we could not have had that name. And the dot me actually was preferable to the dot com. About me dot com didn't just didn't flow. And the about dot me just felt like even though the dot me is not a domain that was well known at the time, it just felt like it put the emphasis on the the me aspect. This is my page. This is about me. It just felt like it was such a natural fit. And so we were very fortunate with the domain.me people, which are from Montenegro, that they believed in us to a degree that they would let us have this name. These kind of names are always on lockdown. They're always reserved for big companies or political purposes or tourism in this particular case. And they're very valuable. Definitely. So About.me was, as I mentioned, famously acquired four days after the official launch. I'm curious about why you decided to be acquired when you did. And as things played out, like, do you feel it was acquired too early? Yeah, we definitely were acquired too early in hindsight. And even in the moment, I kind of felt that. You know, what happened was AOL had, was just becoming a public company. And Tim Armstrong was, you know, is the CEO still today, but was the CEO. And Tim and I, you know, had a relationship. I was a, an advisor to AOL as they were making that transition. And they approached us with the idea that we join their company. And it was incredibly early on. You know, by the time we completed the acquisition, you're accurate, it was only four days. But, you know, the company had been around for about four months. We'd been working on it very quietly. We just hadn't launched our pro- product yet publicly. But 
they made us an offer and the offer was very substantial given the context of the stage that we were at. And to be honest, you know, when I, when I thought about the team, you know, it made a, it made a really big impact financially on their lives and it made an impact on mine as well. But I'd been fortunate enough to had had some success prior to that. Right. Um, with my previous company sphere, which also sold for a great multiple and, you know, in my venture successes. So the, the money aspect wasn't the primary driver for me, but it was important to me when I thought about the context of my team who had not had those experiences before. And then I think what happened was I talked myself a little bit into it because, you know, I felt like we could get to scale. I felt like about.me is the type of product that should be scale, a very large company uh, footprint. And, you know, AOL had AIM and they have AOL Mail and just places which would be natural integration points for us that I thought would help us scale the product much faster. Once we were acquired, and I think it's no fault of AOL, who was nothing but incredibly supportive and generous to us, like, I mean, bent over backwards to be accommodating and, and welcoming. I realized that they had such substantial problems with those two particular products that us actually ever really doing a meaningful, exciting integration was never going to really happen. <laughs> so, um, because they had bigger problems to kind of figure out. And so, you know, as I kind of came to that realization after about a year, I kicked started a dialogue back with Tim and the team about us spinning it back out and buying it and AOL, you know, being a minority, uh, small minority shareholder and, in exchange for us foregoing some monies and things like that. And it took a, it took a while. It took about nine months to make that happen. But, you know, we kind of stuck at it and we had what I'll call very good, constructive adult conversations that was sometimes hard to have. You know, you don't want to be here. Why don't you want to be here? You know, all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't like, well, that's not the case. We just want to build a great company. And it's hard for us to do that in this context. So, the right thing to do is to let it kind of go free and, and let it become its own thing. And so, you know, we were fortunate and I'm always incredibly indebted to Tim and those guys because they allowed us to buy it back and we've been able to work on it for the last three years. So, you know, it all kind of, it's a story where it all has kind of ended well. Definitely. So kind of jumping over to True, True Ventures is a little bit different in that until recently, it seemed atypical for VCs to back non-tech companies like like Blue Bottle, for instance. At, at what point did it click that Blue Bottle was going to be an investment? Well, I think for us, we have theses like everybody else, but we don't have a particular thesis around segments. And so I think what we're most interested in is backing founders of movements and products and services that kind of capture our imagination. And I think that all of a sudden opens us up to exploring lots of different things, lots of weird things, lots of things that are kind of <laughs> right down the, right down the center, but you know, lots of stuff out there on the, on the periphery for sure. And things like blue bottle, which most VC investors were not investing in coffee companies, you know, when we did it. Subsequently, they have. They've invested in other brands. But I think what we saw was a tremendous founder in James Freeman who had a purpose and had a cachet 
to the way that he approached the coffee industry that really aligned itself well with potentially a massively scaled opportunity. And James, when I dug into the story, he wasn't just building a cafe, right? He has a he has an incredible vision around what that cafe should be and what the bottle brand should stand for. And, you know, it starts with where do you procure the beans and working with small lot farmers that adhere to organic principles and had who adhere to the, I mean, the strongest standards of, or the highest standards of sustainability. It's getting those beans and then it's how do we store them and then how do we roast them? And once we roast them, What's our viewpoint around when they should be consumed? You know, we have a freshness policy at Blue Bottle, which almost nobody has. After 10 days, we throw away the beans. If they haven't sold, which they always, by the way, now we have a good problem. <laughs> they're always all selling. But boy, you know, there's been times where they didn't all sell and we, th- and we take them off the shelf flat out, right? We won't serve beans beyond that time frame. So, you know, and then this whole philosophy around one cup at a time, not making the coffee in advance just so it's quick, which is utilitarian. That's not what James is interested in. He's interested in creating a beautiful experience, one that's rooted in great hospitality, but also a delicious product. All the way down to espresso drinks. You know, espresso drinks should be consumed on premise because they should be consumed in a certain type of, of, of ceramic cup because that retains temperature in a different way and they should be consumed at that temperature. So all kinds of different little quirky things that maybe people think about, you know, no, no small, medium, larges, no flavorings, you know, all that stuff. Just really simplifying that experience for the consumer and delivering something that was incredibly beautiful. And so as I heard him tell that story and then digging into the team, which was Brian Meehan, uh, who's a good friend of mine who was going to join as an active chairman, meaning an operating chairman being involved, not just figurehead, uh, David Bowman, who you know was our CFO and, and COO. It just felt like the combination of these people had an opportunity to build a business that can be very significant in terms of scale. The thing when when we finally agreed to make the investment, the last question was that question about scale. And the way that I thought about it, and I think it's correct now, is that every single place in the world where you see a Starbucks, you know, if you were to open a coffee shop that's similar to Blue Bottle or Blue Bottle across the street, how would that coffee shop do? And the answer is that coffee shop would do incredibly well. In fact, we know this answer, right? Even though we do not open across the street from Starbucks. But we just know that no matter how many units they have, we also have an opportunity to have that many units. And eventually, right? And it's mm-hmm. it's 100% possible. And Starbucks is an $85 billion market cap company. So this is a multi-billion dollar type company that we're building. And... What I love about it today is, you know, you fast forward and we've had crazy success and we're on our way to 50, 60 cafes this year that are incredibly profitable and doing very well is that we've always have adhered to the guiding principles that James has for his vision of this business. And that's, you know, 
that's what's exciting about Bluebot specifically, and that's what's exciting when we get to work with founders like Matt Mullenweg at WordPress or John Foley at Peloton or James Park at um, Fitbit or you know Amy Arad at Madison Reed or you know Doug Song at, at Duo Security. I mean, there's like we have a lot of massive scale companies and the commonality is that they all have these type of founders that have the capacity to be a founder of a movement within their category. And it's really, really, really impressive. Absolutely. You, you mentioned WordPress as well. And that is another incredible success story. And I I guess power is over like 30% of all the websites on the internet. More than thirty <laughs> percent. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, in your talk, it was like uh, almost thirty-two. It was just yeah. mind-blowing. How how did you meet Matt, and how did you know it was going to take over the web? Well, I didn't know it was going to take over the web. I just knew that Matt was a once-in-a-generation type founder, right? There's dozens of them each year, so it's not literally once in a generation, but you know, he's that type of founder. Um, we met indirectly through O'Malley. He's my partner at True uh, now. Ohm was writing, he was writing an article on a company that I had been the lead investor in called Oddpost. He was putting that company on the cover of Business 2.0 back in the day when that was a big major tech publication. Um, it was a big deal. And, you know, I met Ohm and he kind of casually, I asked him at the end when I was at the elevator, I asked him what was happening, which I always ask people. And he's like, oh, you know, um, this personal, I think he called it personal diary, you know, web logging or something like that at the time. And, and you know, he told me about it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And, you know, I asked him who the good companies were. And he said, well, there's Typekit or Movable Type, uh, Live Journal. And then there's this really interesting thing that's open source, something work. So he said, something press. And so, I just kind of went back and, you know, looked into it and Googled it. And there was this thing called WordPress. It was super small, but it was open source. And, you know, I got an introduction to Matt and we just started talking on the phone and we talked for a long time, for a really long time, you know, over, I mean, when I say it a long time, not each call, but like over a long period of time, we, we had multiple calls. And then when he moved here or when he was thinking about moving here, we finally physically met. By that time, I think he was 20, and I just kind of helped him navigate, and I didn't do it with a particular motive. I just liked him, and I felt like he was such an incredibly special founder, potential founder, that he was just somebody that you know somehow we wanted to be supportive of or be involved with in lots of different ways, you know, as a mentor, as a friend you know, as an investor, whatever that was. And it's one of the, it's one of the luckiest, awesome things that's happened to me as a, as a professional and as a person, there's nobody I work with that I have so many different lenses of uh, different types of relationships that I have than what I have with Matt. We, you know, I've, I've been his advisor. He's been my advisor. I've been his investor. You know, we're friends. We've been co-investors in companies. You know, just just lots of different things that we've done. And he's now a robust thirty-two, I think. Um, <laughs> and I'm no longer thirty-two for sure. <laughs> and uh, you know, what a what a what a fantastic experience to be a part of. 
Definitely. You, you have this, uh, I guess, superpower of being able to identify great founders. Have you been able to pinpoint or distill what that quality is? Um, well, I don't know if I have such a, an amazing superpower, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've been fortunate. I think in a lot of ways from my very first, you know, investments to these last ones, it's always been dependent on community and just kind of being in the flow and getting to know people and having a sense of who has the capacity to do something amazing. And, you know, I've had lots of misses, but what I'm proud to say is, you know, while I've had a few misses on people who, you know, after working with them, I was super disappointed. It's really rare, you know, even in those businesses that haven't worked out or have had modest success, I haven't regretted the decision um, that I made about the founder or founders. And I felt like they, they've been everything that I hoped they would be and as magical as I thought they would be. Just sometimes it doesn't work out because the idea is it's not meant to be or there's too much headwind or there's just not enough luck in terms of pairing your timing. So for me, it's about, it's really just about finding those people. And, you know, I've been lucky. You know, when I look at my friends, I have lots of different friends and lots of different friend groups like everybody. You know, I've been incredibly fortunate. I grew up in the web in a period where it transitioned from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0 to whatever it is today. And, you know, I have lots of Katarina Fake, uh, who's, you know, the founder uh, of Flickr and Dick Costello, who was at Feedburner at the time, and Evan Williams, who was doing Blogger and Stuart Butterfield, who's now doing Slack, but was doing Flickr in the day. Like, you know, these are, you know, and there's so many more, right? That uh, These are just people that were all just kind of, we're all kind of like each other and that we're just capable. We're in, we're in a really magical environment here in the Bay Area. And we're thinking about solving problems and we've been lucky to go solve some of those problems. And it's always kind of cool when you think like, oh, well, I knew Evan when he was thinking like, how do I, how do I buy a burrito <laughs> tonight, you know? And I was at a stage where I was thinking like, how do I make my mortgage payment in seven months? And we're, we're very fortunate. We've all, it's worked out. Absolutely. Uh, another thing I noticed is that philanthropy is something that is very important to you. Hugely so. Can you talk about the organizations that you're involved with and, and why that work is so important? Yeah. You know, so I'm on the Tony Hawk Foundation board. Um, we, My wife is on the Berkeley Art Museum board. We're also supporters of Southern Exposure, which is a large local organization supporting artists, uh, local artists who are in that weird transition stage of trying to figure out like how to maintain their day job that so they can pay their rent and how to get shows and, and things like that. Right. But are super talented. And then there's lots of other things where we're, you know, tangentially or just, you know, a little bit more subtly and discreetly, you know, supportive of including lots of individuals where we've taken interest in them and, and try to provide them uh, with assistance to, to kind of move to another stage in their career or in their life. But I think, you know, this particular community, like lots of different communities, is incredibly fortunate in that there is a lot of wealth 
that's being created and can accrue to those people that have been lucky and fortunate enough to have outcomes. And I think that, you know, just we as a, as a forward thinking society, we have a, we have a responsibility to ourselves to, to kind of find within what is important to us and then to, you know, apply our time if we don't have financial resources or our kind of money and financial resources. And, um, you know, it's just always been something that's been really kind of core to me. What I get particularly excited about is this intersection of youth and culture. And that kind of really is very similar to the way I think about investing, right? I'm investing in a lot of youth or younger entrepreneurs, uh, typically. And they're typically also doing something that's going to impact culture in a very fundamental way or participate in culture. The Tony Hawk Foundation was really an excellent fit for me because in addition to those aspects, it's also very local, serving local communities. And I like that. I like to be able to understand, you know, the impact. So while there's other organizations which are much more, uh, you know, international per se, those are probably, you know, thank goodness those exist and I'm glad that they're being supported. It's just not, it's not the place for me, right? The place I want to support is those things that impact my local community in a profound way. So, you know, I think doing that and then finding the right balance of being open about it and talking about it versus being anonymous and yet not be self-aggrandizing, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a hard balance to always kind of figure out. Um, and hopefully I'm, I'm skating within the right realm of <laughs> where that should be, right? Because I think by being vocal about it, appropriately so, it sends a message to others that here's something for you to think about, you know, as maybe you become fortunate. How do you behave? You know, is it about going and buying yourself glitzy new watch or house or boat or car or whatever yeah, well maybe you know fine if that's what you want to go do fine and there's no problem with doing that i've done plenty of those kinds of things but also make sure that you you figure out uh, the right balance with giving back and uh, i just you know just think if we all could find that balance it'd just be such a much more amazing world that we live in so i'm trying to do my little part Definitely. I completely agree with you. Uh, and those are some great organizations to support. I'd love to jump into the uh, quick fire round. And um, it's an opportunity to kind of learn more about yourself and, and the usual things that people don't generally ask. Um, okay. I'd love to know about what your favorite book is. Oh, I love Shackleton's Journey. <laughs> so Shackleton's Journey is a, is a great story about uh, a group of men in this particular case, who uh, set out on a journey to discover the South Pole uh, before it had been discovered. And um, they fail in their attempt, but they find themselves stuck in an ice pack, I think for almost nearly two years. And they survive, and every single person survives. And not only is it just an epic story to read, you know, it's a true story. And it's exciting, it's fun, it's riveting, but at the same time, it also has a lot of meaning around leadership and um, also the consequences of isolation and what happened to lots of these people once they re-entered into the mainstream world. And, and just there's just lots of 
just really interesting textures about it. So I, I love that book. Um, I'm reading a great book right now about Trevor Noah called Born a Crime and um, about apartheid and his experience of growing up in South Africa all the way to him becoming the uh, the host of The Daily Show. And just, you know, amazing story. So you've had a lot of uh, really interesting jobs. What's been your favorite and least favorite eclectic job? <laughs> so many weird jobs. Um, I don't. I think there. I don't think there's any of them I didn't like. You know, to be honest, um, I think some of them are are kind of like cool that I was able to do that, and then some of them are like, wow, that's really humbling that you were able to do that. And I'm proud of that kind of in hindsight, you know, so I think the hardest thing that I ever, you know, did was just being a janitor. And, you know, I was a janitor at my college because, you know, I didn't have a lot of money when I went to school and it was a way of making, you know, some spending money on the side. And that's a pretty humbling moment when you're doing something like that. It's a very humanizing moment because, there's a gazillion people doing this, and it just helps you to develop a level of empathy, which is really important and applies to lots of different aspects of your life or my life. You know, as an example, when I'm down um, at Chrissy Field, which is a local beach here in the Bay Area, and I work out quite frequently, you know, there's park rangers and there's people that come in and clean the public toilets and they um, empty the trash cans and they do those jobs. And, you know, I don't think anybody ever says thank you. I always say thank you. I've done that job, right? Not that specific job, but I get it. And I'm so appreciative that they do that because it makes my experience possible. Sometimes I get down there and I have to go to the restroom or, um, you know, just whatever. And it's like it has such an impact on on me and all of us. And it's yet nobody is ever appreciative. And I'm appreciative because I've actually have been that that person. The funnest job I ever had that was one I didn't see coming um, was that I was a yogurt merchandiser when I lived in France. And so when I moved to Paris, I realized that my French was not at the proficiency it needed to be. And so I asked the company I worked with if I could get a job outside of Paris. And so we started looking around, and and one of the obvious areas was to, to work in sales. And as they correctly pointed out, you know, your French isn't strong enough for you to work in sales. <laughs> so maybe, maybe you shouldn't start there. But... They offered me a job of, I ended up living in the southernmost part of France, near Perpignan. Uh, it's where Loic uh, Lemur, who's a Frenchman who was in our community, comes from. And I ended up moving there, and and I would go and I would clean the grocery shelves and restock them and, and help put together a strategic plan for how they would make their yogurt category in their aisles more profitable, right, and have higher turns. But I would have never thought I'd be wearing a little blue jacket with my name, Tony, written on it um, <laughs> and gloves and, you know, waking up and driving to an account at 11 o'clock at night and cleaning, you know, taking everything off their shelves and helping them clean down their shelves and then figuring out how to implement a restocking of those shelves and leaving at four or five in the morning and, 
going and eating merguez sausage, you know, with the team. What an incredible experience for me as a young person. So those are a couple of odd things. There's a lot more. <laughs> Very in- super interesting to me. Um, you've been all over the world. And so where's one place that you'd love to live or visit that you haven't been to before? Oh, there's a bunch of places that I haven't been that I'd love to love to visit. Buenos Aires is one of them for sure. Um, I have some intrigues, maybe some palace intrigue about going to Russia, but I feel like I'm, I'm pretty well traveled at this point. I've seen almost everything in Europe and most of Asia and, uh, you know, bits and pieces of South America. And I'd also very much covet, uh, spending time in Africa and, you know, that's on my, my bucket list, to to spend several months in Africa in terms of living. I'd love to live in Tokyo. That's my my new kind of obsession. So I think it would be fun to live there. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, cities in the world, actually. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, we've come to sort of the end of the uh, interview and my questions, but I'd love to give you this time to plug anything that you like. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, listen, you know, I obviously love About.me. Yep. Um, but, um, you know, I think... You know, we've covered a lot of different stuff here, um, so I won't overly plug. But I think the the real opportunity is for people to really take note of their own story, no matter how horrible it's been or how great it's been, but to really kind of take stock and to understand it better and to take pride in it and be humble about it and to, to kind of put that story forth because it's um, it's helpful for lots of different people and it's helpful for yourself to, to kind of wrap yourself around it mentally. I think about.me is a, an amazing product that, that helps to kind of scratch a little bit that surface of that idea. So anyways, I hope everybody out there will go set up an about.me page and then email me and let me know. Definitely. I need to update mine as well, but uh, yeah, it's a great product and um, I'll actually, I'll put it on my business card next. Uh, That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, I just really want to thank you for your time today. And, you know, before I do any interview, I I love to kind of do some research and and talk to people and stuff. And I'm out here in New York for Stocktoberfest and getting some input from like Gary and Howard and a bunch of other investors here. And everybody loves working with you. And I've just had such a great time speaking with you today. So (laughs) for what it's worth, it's been an incredible experience. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So this has been the Venture Forth Podcast with Tony Conrad of True Ventures and About.me. enjoyed today's show please subscribe to the venture forth podcast on itunes google play music stitcher or soundcloud you can also follow at venture forth pod on twitter for our latest updates as always i'm your host joe mahavutivani and thank you for listening to the venture forth podcast